This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be as the children in the gospel. Lord, verse 2 of Psalm 8 says, Out of the mouth of children you have ordained strength. And I pray uh, what the children led us in singing. Lord, we know that you are good and faithful. You will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. Pray that you would speak to us and help us to see Jesus more clearly today. I pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, so I uh, hope you've enjoyed going through Psalm 46. I loved it yesterday, doing a really deep dive in one psalm. And this morning, we're going to continue our immersion in the psalms, but we're going to be looking at Psalm 8 in particular. And as we talked about yesterday, the psalms serve as faithful guides through the, the whole range of a human experience as we walk before God in our broken world. And so in this sense, the Psalms train us how to become fully human. They train us how to become fully human. And this, of course, implies that we are not yet fully human. We're not truly human yet. I think that's true. We're still very much in process. We're somewhere on the way. And the Christian life is about becoming the creatures that God intends us to be, but we're not home yet. History therefore, is lived east of Eden. Although we were designed to live in communion, to live in communion with God and with one another and with the natural world, what we experience instead, most of the time, is a world of conflict. Not all the time, maybe, but often enough, we feel like strangers, maybe even enemies to God, to one another, and even to ourselves. Things feel out of place. Now, Walker Percy addresses this sense of displacement in his very strange and very good book, Lost in the Cosmos. Has anyone read that book? Yeah, I encourage you. It's, it's weird, but check it out. So it's, the book is a parody of self-help books. And he's addressing the fact that despite the unprecedented rise in things like education and scientific knowledge and standards of living and access to recreation. Despite all of these wonderful things, our culture is still plagued and plagued by more fear and more envy and more anxiety, more loneliness, more boredom, more depression, more suicide. It's such a strange thing. Despite all of these wonderful things that we have, things feel worse. And in this book, he asks why. Why is this the case? And like I said, it's a strange book. Uh, the first page is actually uh, like eight different alternate titles for the book. And the titles are questions. So here are some of the questions that he asks, uh, highlighting just how strange our existence is. So, Lost in the Cosmos, or why is it that of all the billions and billions of strange objects in the cosmos, novas, quasars, pulsars, black holes, you are beyond doubt the strangest? Why is it the case? Or, why is it possible to learn more in 10 minutes about the Crab Nebula in Taurus, which is 6,000 light years away? Why is it possible to learn more about that in 10 minutes 
than you presently know about yourself? The answer to these questions, he says, is that we live in a deranged age. It's madness. And it's more deranged than usual right now because despite great scientific and technological advances, he writes, humans have not the faintest idea of who we are or what we're doing. The world's not okay and we're not okay. We are lost in the cosmos. And the scripture this morning, particularly Psalm 8, helps us to find our place again. And so our plan this morning is to walk through Psalm 8, and then we'll um, spend some time looking at how the writer of Hebrews fills out the meaning of Psalm 8 by interpreting it through the lens of Jesus Christ. So beginning with verse 1 of Psalm 8, we see this. O Lord, our governor, how excellent is your name in all the world. The psalm begins with the name of God. And in the Bible, names are a very big deal. They're massively important. According to Richard Baucom, a New Testament scholar, he says that names identify and sum up a person insofar as we can know that person. And so the name of God is essentially God. You cannot separate the name from God himself. And it's hard to imagine a better beginning for those of us who feel disoriented in the world, lost in the cosmos, than beginning with the name of God. The best way to get unlost is to find a solid point of reference, a visible landmark, and then to keep your direction of travel the same relative to that shore point. And in our psalm, that solid point of reference is the name of God. It's the Lord. The name of God, the Lord, is the very same name that God revealed to Moses back in the burning bush in Exodus 3. This is the God who takes the initiative. He's the God who pursues us. He's the God who desires to be in relationship with us. The Lord is the God who redeems his people from slavery, and it's the same God who has created all things. If we want to get unlost in the cosmos, the name, the Lord, is our North Star. We align ourselves with the Lord. And then if we move down uh, in this psalm, I, I love how it's printed here so you can see it all in, uh, this is page six, all on one page. It's not disrupted. I think it's really helpful for what we're going to be doing next. Um, moving down, the psalmist describes uh, something in verse three and four that I hope all of us have experienced in our lives, a humbling encounter with something much greater than ourselves. And when we're next to that thing, we feel small and insignificant. Maybe you've felt uh, this near a soaring mountain range or a fathomless canyon or an edgeless sea. But David describes this, the experience of peering into the night sky. And as I've thought about it, that's probably the most universal experience. Not everybody lives near mountains or canyons or the sea, but everyone can look up into the sky at night. In verse 3, David writes this, when I consider your heavens, even the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? Here David stares into the dark abyss, the jet black canvas of the night that's painted with streaks and specks of light, and he asks the obvious question, the question that any sane person would ask, how in the world could we matter next to this? Here's how Eugene puts it, Eugene Peterson, the, the guy I, um, 
whose book I recommended, Answering God. He also translated the Bible in a translation called The Message, really wonderful, particularly the Psalms. And this is how he translates uh, this passage uh, of Psalm 8. I look up at your micro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. Then I look at my micro self and wonder, why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? The psalmist marvels at the attention God gives to us, the value that God places on human beings in such a universe. And as we keep reading the psalm, the structure of the psalm mirrors its substance. Like a church building, like our beautiful church building back in Pittsburgh, there's meaning in the architecture of this poem. David first directs our eyes up to the heavens, and then as we continue reading the poem, as we continue moving our eyes down the poem, we see humans in verse 5, a little lower than the angels. Our eyes continue to move down from the heads of human beings who are crowned with glory and honor to the feet of human beings in verse 6. And then to what is below our feet, the beasts, the birds, and the fish in verses 7 and 8. And verse 5 is the very center of this poem. And as we'll see, human beings are the very center of the universe. In verses 5 through 8, we discover our proper place, particularly in verse 5, under God and over creation. And the language of crowns and dominion and all things being put under our feet is royal language. The psalmist is, is hearkening our memory back to Genesis 1. The psalmist is saying that we human beings are kings and queens over creation. This is the human vocation. This is why we exist, to be kings and queens, to exercise dominion as loving stewards, to love God and to love what God created. So what does this look like? Well, it looks like caring for God's good creation. It looks like doing the stuff, the best stuff that humans do, like doing good work well, creating art and technology, sharing meals, building friendships, building families, raising kids, helping our world come to full bloom. That's how I would describe the human vocation. Psalm 8 tells us that the majesty of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, is visible in the whole world over all the earth. But he also says that this is nowhere more clear, God's majesty is nowhere more clear than in his relationship with human beings. I think this is surprising. According to this psalm, where does the glory of God, where is the glory of God in the cosmos? In verse 5, the glory of God is on the head of men and women who are crowned with glory and honor. This is why St. Irenaeus said the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. I think that's right. Even though we're the smallest specks of stardust, living in the armpit of the cosmos, in the narrowest band of time, as far as God is concerned, we are the center of his universe. And I think this has profound implications for us. It's incredibly comforting, incredibly humbling. It tells us that God cares about our little stuff, each one of us. The God who created enough energy to power a septillion stars for billions of years has enough energy for you. He has all of the time in the world for you and for me. The God who holds the universe together 
is the same God, the Lord, who's invested in piecing our lives back together. Nothing is too small for the Lord. Nothing is too, no concern is unimportant to him. Verse 9, we see that the poem ends the way that it begins. And as Robert Alter, a Old Testament scholar, describes it, this is what he says the meaning of the ending is. This closes a perfect circle that celebrates the harmony of God's creation. The beginning and the ending is, is a perfect circle. The integrated harmony of the created world and the integrated harmony of the poem make a perfect match. That's how he describes it. And Psalm 8 really is a beautiful poem, but there's just one problem, and I think it's a pretty big one. The created world is actually not very harmonious, is it? We don't see the idyllic vision of Psalm 8 as it's described. Instead, we see these headlines, and these are just a few of the headlines from this past week. Murders in the U.S. are up 30% in this past year. 23 species are now extinct, according to the U.S. federal wildlife officials. They were declared extinct. 22 animals, one plant species. This past week, 700,000 people, one in 500 Americans, have died because of COVID. You know, there's a, a quote from Father Jonathan's sermon a few weeks ago that's stuck with me. I think it was from Andrew Walker, if, if that's right, a, a, a theologian. The quote was this, We live in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint on the trajectory to a Revelation 21 future. And that stuck with me because I just think it's really helpful. It makes a lot of sense of our experience. And I think it helps us make a lot of sense of this psalm. You see, Psalm 8 is a kind of commentary. It's a biblical commentary on the Genesis 1 blueprint. and tells us what the world is supposed to be like. In Hebrews 2, on the other hand, uh, this passage shows us what this psalm looks like in our Genesis 3 world. Hebrews 2, this passage, transforms our vision of what it looks like, in other words, to be truly human in our world as it currently is, our world that's been corrupted by sin. So I want to look at this Hebrews 2 passage for a moment. Uh, after quoting um, our psalm in this passage, it's a little bit of a different translation in Hebrews 2, but it's the same Psalm 8. He quotes um, Psalm 8, 4 through 6 in the beginning of our passage that uh, Nancy so powerfully read for us this morning. After quoting this, the author of Hebrew interacts with the psalm, and he writes this, starting in the second half of verse 8, Hebrews chapter 2. Now, in subjecting all things to them, to humans, God left nothing outside of their control. But as it is, as our world is in this Genesis 3 world, we do not yet see everything in subjection to human beings. The world is not as it ought to be. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, I want us to see that as becoming fully human beings, because that's what it means. It is fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. You see, God's blueprint was that human beings would 
help creation come to full bloom. But as it is, in our lived experience now, the world is marked more by violent domination than it is by loving dominion. But Hebrews 2 tells us that in our fallen world, Jesus, the Lord, shows us what it looks like to be truly human. We see this in his intimacy with the Father. Jesus was a man who had nothing to prove. He was never in a rush. We see this in the way that Jesus spoke. His words had power and compassion. His words brought clarity and conviction to people. And we see this in the way that he touched those who were hurting, who were hurting the most. He restored broken bodies. He healed those who were sick. And he restored the forgotten and the overlooked and the abused and the oppressed. Jesus' life was a life filled with the Holy Spirit, lived in obedience to the Father. His life was characterized by radical, self-giving love. He brought order out of chaos with his life. He lived into the human vocation. And as we see, the glory of God is still a human being fully alive, as St. Irenaeus told us. It just happens to look very different in our Genesis 3 world. The most fully alive human being was a first century Jewish man hanging on a Roman cross. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor and is the consummate human being because of his death for us. And his resurrection opens to us the path of life. The death and resurrection of Jesus is ground zero for the new creation. And I want to read uh, to you a quote from a Dominican priest and theologian by the name of Herbert McCabe uh, that provides some really wonderful insight into all of this. And I'm going to read a a longer section of it. And if there's a... um, a few paragraphs of, of writing that have had the greatest impact on my life in the past 10 years, it's probably these. So I'm going to read them to you, and I think it clarifies and illuminates Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2, what's going on and some of the things that we've been talking about. So I'll read it for us. It's from one of his books called God Matters. So Herbert McCabe writes this, <clears throat> We have made a world in which there is no way of being human that does not involve suffering. Jesus accepted the cross in love and obedience, and his obedience was the the command to the command to be human. Because of this, not Adam, but Jesus was the first human being, the first member of the human race in whom humanity came to fulfillment, the first human being for whom to live was simply to love. For that is what human beings are for. And then he goes on to explain what's at stake for us as we are confronted with the life of Jesus, the God-man. He writes this, When we encounter Jesus, in whatever way we encounter him, he strikes a chord in us. We resonate to him because he shows us the humanity that lies hidden in us, the humanity of which we are afraid. He is the human being that we dare not be. He takes risks of love, which we recognize as risks, and so for the most part, do not take. For this reason, we are afraid 
and we settle for being less than human. We recognize that our very nature calls us to something new and frightening. It calls us into communication, which means self-giving, self-abandonment, being at the disposal of others. We recognize, however dimly, that we are the kind of being that finds its fulfillment, its happiness, and flourishing only in giving itself up, in getting beyond itself. We need to lose ourselves in love, and this is what we fear. And so mostly we settle for what we are, what we have made ourselves. We settle for the person that we have achieved or constructed. We settle for our own self-image because we are afraid of being made in the image of God. So I want to pull all of this together for us. We are lost in the cosmos, I think, because we settle for a life that is less than fully human. We settle for this because of what it will cost us, and Jesus shows us. Jesus shows what a love of a life of love costs. It costs everything, and everything's too much. So instead, mostly what we do is we structure our lives around trying to isolate ourselves from hurt or insulate ourselves from danger of maximizing our pleasure and minimizing our pain. This is the surest way to stay lost. But if Jesus is the first one to be fully human, the pioneer of our humanity and of our salvation, this changes the game for us and what's called of us. The path to our full humanity, becoming the people that God created us to be, the path to the majesty of God's name becoming the most visible over all of the earth is taking up our cross and following Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us that the only way to rediscovering our place, to finding our footing in the cosmos, is by following him. The way to the crown of glory and honor is the way of the cross. Only here can we find God only here can we find ourselves. God made us to be truly human beings. The way to live into our full humanity, to really being made in the image of God rather than our own image, our own self-image, is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the name above all names, Jesus alone, the Lord, is our solid reference point. Following him is how we get unlost in the cosmos. Only by following the Lord Jesus can we find our place. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you and uh, confess that we are disoriented and lost and we are afraid of being fully human because of what it will cost us. And I pray that you would help us, that you would fill us with your spirit to be uh, unafraid, to not live in fear, but to follow you, our sure reference point, the name that is above all names, the name that is majestic over all the earth. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.